Hello, and welcome back to Love and Friendship. Today we have yet another absolutely ridiculous and asinine, like, overly ambitious project to undertake. Namely, I do in fact want to talk about Augustine, but I kind of want to use his discussion of Christianity and of love and of friendship and the confessions and the city of God as sort of a backdrop for discussing basically early Christian theology just across the board. Like, we're not going to actually spend a whole lot of time talking about medieval philosophy and medieval theology. Um, like, beyond our discussion of Augustine in this session, we're going to have, like, two more sessions, and then we're already going to be on to Dante, which is, like, right on the edge between medieval thinking and, and Renaissance or, or modern thinking. Um, so we don't have a whole heck of a lot of time to talk about just the sweep of changes that have affected Christianity over what is literally like 1,500 years here. Um, so this is going to be as much opportunity as we're going to get. Like, we're going to talk about it a little bit today, we're going to talk about it a little bit when we talk about Aquinas, um, but I really want to sort of set the record straight, describe how how everything changed. Because the fact of the matter is, talking about the Old Testament and talking about the New Testament does not give a complete picture of how Christianity works. Um, and the idea that it does is actually a super Protestant thing, um, which, again, we'll talk about once Protestantism actually shows up and we can talk about Martin Luther and his attitude towards Christianity and all that fun stuff. Um, but for now, I want to sort of focus squarely on early Christianity. Um, so last time we talked about the New Testament, we talked about, like, Jesus and the gospel and what early Christians believed. Um, but you'll notice that in all the passages that I included about love, friendship, sexuality, all the normal stuff that we talk about in this class, at least as it appears in the New Testament, um, there were probably quite a few questions you were still left with. Um, stuff that did not get answered by our discussion of the New Testament alone. Christianity as it appears in the New Testament and Christianity as it appears today are two very, very different things. Like, yes, they have a lot of the same ideas in mind. They have a lot of the same sort of theoretical underpinnings. They have a, they obviously quote the same Bible verses. Um, but that does not mean that they are one and the same. A lot of what happened in that 1,500-year spread has either subtly or less subtly changed the way that Christianity sort of understood itself, uh, changed the way that, like, it behaved. Um, there's a lot that has happened. Um, and I want to start this discussion by looking at, like, the moment after the New Testament. The two, maybe 300 years um, that succeed after the writing of, of these apostles, these, these, you know, the Gospels, the Epistles, and so on and so forth. Um, because Christianity was really in this kind of Wild West period throughout its early sort of heritage, throughout the first couple hundred years that it existed. Um, everybody was not on the same page. Uh, like, we talked a little bit about how Paul sort of went off and founded all these churches throughout the Gentile world, as contrasted with, like, the, the central church in Jerusalem, so long as it existed. Um, the trouble is, because, you know, communication is a little bit sparse, and it's kind of hard to get messages from one church to another in this time period, because there are not, you know, telegraph lines or the internet or, you know, published books, like... 
you don't have a printing press, you don't have, you know, safe roads or, or travel for all that matter. Like, in the New Testament itself, it's recorded that, like, half the time when people go on big sea voyages across the Mediterranean, they're either picked up by pirates or shipwrecked or any number of terrible things will happen to them. Um, so as a result, each of the, the churches is fairly isolated. And this produces a sort of disconnect um, between the various Christian churches across the Mediterranean world at this point in time. Um, like, we've talked about how Rome worked, we've talked about how it spread around the Mediterranean Sea as sort of its central position. Um, Christianity, too, followed that spread. Um, it was very much, at least in its early stages, limited to the Roman Empire as it existed at the time. Now, there are stories, even in the Bible, like even as early as, you know, the first couple of decades after Christianity really got off the ground, after the ascension of Jesus and, you know, Peter and the apostles were sort of left to their own devices, of Christianity actually spreading beyond the bounds of the Roman Empire. Um, notably, there is one little passage in Athens, or in Acts, that mentions one of the, the apostles wandering off into Ethiopia, and in fact the Ethiopian church is like ancient and really disconnected from a lot of Christendom. Um, there are also rumors, although they are very much unsubstantiated, scholars are investigating them, that at some point in the first like two centuries of Christendom, apparently somebody made it out to India um, because there are apparently, like, coins in India that have, like, Paul's face on them or something. Like, there's some weirdly surprising texts that, that um, the, like, Hindu-Christian church has that's apparently, like, really old. Um, again, there's a lot of sort of discussion, of, like, of the archaeological record here. It would seem that Christianity spread real fast. Um... But again, because there were so many sort of disconnections as a consequence of this, because so many of the churches did not have the ability to sort of communicate and stay in communication with all the other churches, it was not unified. And that's the main thing I want to stress here at this point. The Christian church had a whole bunch of diverse ideas across all of the different churches that were involved, and each individual church may well have had a different set of doctrines, a different set of priorities, a different set of, like, teachings than any of the other churches in this first hundred years. And this problem is very much exacerbated by the fact that the Roman, the, the Christian church is very much the enemy of the Roman state. Um, remember, the Romans have kicked all the Jews and Christians out of Jerusalem at this point. They have largely cracked down on Judaism and Christianity, um, both as a potential challenge to the dominant pagan cults that were in place at this point, as well as being considered rabble-rousers and, and potentially inciting areas to violence in certain situations, like there are frequently riots among Christians. Um, which means that the churches are now in hiding a lot of the time. They are specifically going out of their way not to be seen, which means it makes it that much harder for the churches to communicate with one another. Um, now this has phases over the course of the relationship between Christianity and the Roman Empire. Um, like, the there are periods where there are high moments of Christian persecution, and like the emperor has ordered that, you know, the the Christians are to be actively persecuted, tracked down, thrown to the lions, however you want to do it. Um, and then it sort of calms down. Like, there was one particular emperor who was like, this is so annoying, I don't want to deal with this anymore, so as long as nobody identifies themselves as a Christian, then just leave them alone. Like, don't 
try and track them down. Like, yes, it is technically illegal. Yes, we aren't going to tolerate this, but we're not going to go looking for trouble. Um, so it became this weird situation where, like, your neighbors could out you as a Christian, and there's actually, like, some, some existing Roman graffiti where it, like, shows this weird dude with a donkey's head on a cross, and it's like, so-and-so is a Christian, as though he's, like, calling him out in the public square. Um, this apparently happened fairly frequently in the early Christian church in the, in the like, first couple of centuries A.D. in the Roman Empire. Um, but as a consequence, it just further served to separate the churches from one another. Um, and over time, while areas of churches started to sort of share their ideas and come to common conclusions, um, there ultimately developed like three different areas, three different sort of church subgroups with their own kind of distinct theology that are usually identified by, by scholars studying this particular time. Um, the one of them, the one in Asia Minor, would eventually grow into the, the kind of Greek church, so we'll, we'll kind of ignore that one so much. Their, their emphasis was very much on the historical interpretation of the Old and New Testament. Um, but the two distinct churches that, that we do want to talk about, because it is very relevant for the development of Christianity, both as it develops in the course of history and as it's going to affect the philosophers who are writing in our class, um, on the one hand, there is the Eastern Church. Uh, in Asia Minor, but especially focused around the Egyptian city of Alexandria, um, there grew this very strong current of Christian thought, very much circulating around the works of Origen um, and of other sort of Alexandrine thinkers, um, that primarily focused on interpreting the Bible, interpreting the Old and New Testament allegorically. Um, working so and by that I mean, like, rather than focusing on the literal text of the Bible, like treating every act as though it actually happened, Origen and company were frequently looking at the text from the perspective of, um, like, it is all symbolic. You do not have to take some of the restrictions literally. You do not necessarily have to take all of the events recorded in the Old Testament literally. Instead, you need to just recognize that it is an allegorical explanation. Like, they'll look at that the long descriptive passages of sexual uh, attraction in the Song of Solomon and say, oh, well, that's just a metaphor for Jesus and his relationship to the church. Or they'll look at the passages that recount miracles of Elijah or even some of the miracles of Jesus and say, oh, that's an allegory. It's meant to, you know, describe, like, God's wrath coming upon the, the sinners or the unbelievers, things like that. Um... And this occasionally got a little wild and out of hand. Like, some of these Alexandrine schools are super-duper allegorical in ways that really depart from the intended meaning of the, set, of the text, or at least the more kind of, how do I put this, more obvious intended meaning of the text. Like, you can sort of turn the entire text around in some cases, um, using this methodology, and Origen himself was in fact accused of being a heretic at one point, um, which I should mention, for because for some reason I haven't at this point, that heresies were many during this process. Um, when you have all of these churches separated in this way, kind of isolated in this way, some of the ideas that spring up out of them are frankly very unorthodox. Um, orthodoxy is literally just 
like right thinking as far as uh, the church is concerned. Ortho meaning correct, doxa meaning uh, thought or philosophy or like idea. Um, so anyone who was unorthodox, who you know was wrong thinking, could usually get a decent following because he probably had the whole strength of his church behind him. And Christianity at this point in time spent a lot of its time trying to correct the heresies that had already cropped up. Like even in Paul's own time, like even in the New Testament, there are records of people getting the message wrong. And Paul is like trying to correct them in various ways. Um, but by the first and second century, Gnosticism has shown up and is arguing for a completely different understanding of the world, namely one where like there are good and evil gods and both of them are fighting and Jesus is like on the good side, but the God of the Old Testament is on the bad side. Like it gets absolutely batshit crazy. Um, and some of these heresies get so out of hand that there's actually fighting amongst the Christians. Like, this is part of why the Roman Empire is so angry at the Christians, because every now and again you'll get the city in open revolt as, you know, one church is literally fighting, like killing the members of another church over their theological differences. Um, now... On the one hand, we get this Alexandrian church, which is sort of like a coalition of churches that are working together, interpreting the Bible in the same way. On the other hand, we need to talk about the Roman church, because this is going to be a huge deal in the future. Um, the Roman church, largely their doctrine and theology was kind of pioneered by a fellow named Tertullian, um, who is awesome. By the way, like I love reading Tertullian. I've read a little Tertullian. I've read a little Origin. I've read most of the the Church Fathers in, in one form or another. Like I took a whole class on it once upon a time in Boston College. Um, and while I don't remember a whole heck of a lot of it, I do remember in, like enjoying reading and getting a sense of, of these various important thinkers. Um, Tertullian, I love. Like I think he's so cool. He is like just this hardcore angry Christian. He's got numerous passages where he'll just like insult people for paragraphs on end. Like the dude is awesome. Um, but Tertullian also, at one point in his career, ultimately embraced heresy and was condemned as a heretic. So again, I should emphasize that many of the greatest thinkers in Christendom at this point were at one point or another allured by the unorthodox uh, attitudes of their time. Tertullian was a heretic, Origen was a heretic, they are also widely regarded as some of the major founders of the Christian faith. Um, this is kind of normal, and this is what I want to emphasize, but we'll get there. Tertullian, his emphasis was very much on the fact that he was an educated dude. Um, Tertullian was, in fact, a lawyer before he became a Christian. And what's more, he had studied philosophy fairly extensively, and most importantly for our purposes, he had studied Stoicism, especially intently. Um, and in fact, his bias tends towards a Stoic interpretation of Christianity. And when, in fact, he joined up with a heresy, he joined up with a heresy that was very much founded in Stoicism, and that tended to be even more austere, even more restrictive with respect to what Christians should and shouldn't do um, than normal boilerplate New Testament Christianity would be. And I want to emphasize this, because... Tertullian's emphasis on a sort of ethical Christianity, on a Christianity very much rooted in what the Christian is supposed to do or not to do with their lives, became the kind of dominant trend in Roman Christianity. By which I mean not just like Rome 
the city, but also Rome and its surroundings. Like, the entire western half of the Roman Empire, insofar as it was Christian, tended to embrace Tertullian-style Christianity, where the entire eastern half of the empire tended to embrace the more Alexandrine allegorical type of Christianity. And while they are all supposedly under the same masthead, and like up until three, four hundred uh, AD or CE, we would have had, you know, all of these people saying we are part of the one true Catholic Church. There is a rift there. And it's a rift that's going to grow more and more significant as time goes on. Um, what, in the early stages of, you know, Roman Christianity, like, again, while they're on the defensive, while they're trying to protect themselves from the oversight of, of the Roman Empire, as they're sort of, you know, hiding and, and like, hunkering down during sort of Roman purges and stuff, uh, when they are, in fact, being persecuted, um, there isn't a whole lot of conversation going on, and these writers and thinkers are fairly isolated, even as these churches are sort of, you know, developing their own tendencies, as churches are branching off and forming their own heresies, as Gnosticism is becoming more and more powerful, as Manichaeism, like we see in Augustine, is becoming more and more powerful, um, as this sort of wild disparity among Christians is sort of growing deeper and deeper, more and more entrenched, um, we also have these sorts of, you know, centers of Christian thought um, in Rome, in Carthage, in Alexandria, in Antioch. Um, they are also growing stronger, like their identity is becoming more entrenched. Um, and on the one hand, Christians are kind of okay with this. Like, one of the things that I want to stress here is that Christianity, even at this stage, tended to appreciate and value diversity in its theology, in its ideas. That's part of the reason why, like, hundreds of years later, when we are, in fact, discussing what books are going to show up in the New Testament canon, um, one of the things that, like, the, the uh, founders of the canon explicitly say that they value is the different attitudes. The fact that we have four Gospels instead of one. Uh, like, there was one particular heretic, Arius, um, who, one of his major heretical ideas was that, like, Jesus was actually just God and not a human at all. Like, this was one of the main reasons that people would fight heresies, is, like, they were very much trying to figure out exactly how Jesus and fit into the whole God thing. Like, the New Testament seems to say that Jesus is God, but if Jesus is God, then he can't be a human, because, you know, Plato has taught us humans and gods don't mix. It's this whole thing. Uh, but Arius actually, when he was coming up with his own canon, um, the Arian canon, like he rejected the Gospel of Mark, and he rejected the Gospel of Matthew, and he rejected the Gospel of John, and instead was like Luke. Luke is where it's at, but we're going to like take bits out of it because Luke was wrong about some things. Um, so different heretics have different ideas of what even the Bible should look like. And to make it even more complicated, we also have all those other books hanging around, like the Shepherd of Hermas, like the Gospel of Thomas, writings that were, to some degree, obviously written after the fact of Jesus' being on Earth and Jesus, you know, being the friend of whoever is writing. Um, these were not apostolic. But at the same time as many of the churches are rejecting these texts, we also have many of the churches radically embracing them. Like, this is the truth. The Gospel of Thomas is the central gospel that we should be relying on. Again, it's kind of a giant shit show. But 
for all of the disparity in teaching, for all of the heretical churches, for all of the, you know, complete disagreement between one church and another, we also have these poles, the Roman Church and the Alexandrine Church, both growing up and having their own ideas, the one very ethical, the one very allegorical. And in the midst of this, in the midst of all of this chaos, we get a major historical event that totally changes the balance of power here. Um, first off, Rome at this point has also been undergoing some political problems. Uh, during this first and second and third century, things have gotten dicey in Rome. The imperial line has gotten real messy. There was a good 50-year period in there where emperors were getting assassinated and, you know, bumped off and replaced, like, virtually every six months. It got bad. Um, what's more, the Roman Empire has been suffering a lot of revolts lately. Lots of outlying provinces under or trying to rebel against their, their provincial governors. Um, even in the city of Rome itself, there has been rioting and unrest partially because it's been motivated by this religious tension between Christians, Jews, um, Zoroastrians, because they're becoming a more dominant force in the pagan cults, um, as well as just typical, like, we worship Jupiter pagans. You know, there's a lot of problems going on here. And part of it is just, honestly, at this point, Rome has overreached itself. It's too big. Um, there's just too much space for Rome, the, like, center of the... the Roman world to administer, to govern. Um, so we have a couple of Roman emperors toward the end of this period, like around the 3rd, 4th century uh, AD or CE, um, who are uh, trying to like partition the Roman Empire. Um, and towards the very end of this, we actually get one guy who's like, all right, I'm just going to split this sucker down the middle. Um, because the Eastern Roman Empire and the Western Roman Empire have radically different identities at this point, they have, like, totally different administrative centers, and they seem to have completely sort of interests at odds with one another, and because it's so hard to just get people wherever they need to be, like, if, you know, Egypt is rioting, how do you, you know, where are you going to divert the legion from? Like, they're fighting in Germania, and they're fighting in Africa, like, what are you supposed to do? Well, let's just boil it down. Let's split the empire into the Western Roman Empire, with Rome as its capital, and the Eastern Roman Empire capital, TBD, um, and we're going to have an emperor in each one of them. And each of those emperors will have a sub-emperor who will also be responsible for administrative duties. Let's divide up the power here. And it sounds like a really good idea, except immediately once you have, like, four different people vying for the title of emperor, they're going to start fighting each other, and they're going to start killing each other, and they're going to start trying to control all of each other's territory. It's this whole thing. Um, so the whole plan radically backfires, but at this point, we should notice for sure We've got a Western Rome and an Eastern Rome, and both of them have very different identities, and notice that the church is splitting along these lines as well. Um, it's not subtle. Enter Constantine. Constantine was part of this whole there are four emperors power structure, namely when the, the guy, the original emperor who founded this structure, retired along with his like Pal in the Eastern Roman Empire. Um, Constantine's father, Constantius, turned out to be like the under-emperor in the West. Um, but then there were a couple of riots and a couple of power plays, and this guy died, and Constantine went on his quest for vengeance! Um, and as a consequence, Constantine ended up taking over the whole shebang. 
Like, in the course of, uh, let's say, 20 years or so, Constantine destroyed all of his enemies, united the Roman Empire once again, and was basically coming up with a plan to completely change the way that the Roman Empire was going to look. But importantly, the battle that won it for him the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, where he conquered Maxentius and finally united the Western Roman Empire before making some dirty deals and getting the Eastern Empire under his thumb as well. At the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, Constantine reports that he saw a vision. And in this vision, some heavenly being appeared to him and said that he should inscribe the Christian, signal, the Christian symbol of the Chi Rho which are like two Greek letters, and specifically the two Greek letters that start the word Christ, onto the shields of his soldiers. And then he did this. He told all the soldiers to inscribe the Cairo on their shields, and then they went into battle, and they won the day, as the prophecy would seem to suggest. So Constantine all of a sudden seems to be making some real nice things to say about Christianity. And one of the first things he's going to do is say, okay, Christianity is now a legal religion. No more persecutions, no more, like, under the table hiding, no more secrecy, no nothing. Christianity, Constantine is on board with. Now, that's not to say that Constantine was himself a Christian. Scholars are really, really kind of divided about this. And Constantine played this really close to the chest. There's a famous... Uh, there's a famous historical incident where, like, Constantine is literally trying to found the new capital of the Eastern Roman Empire, Constantinople, you know, the city that bears Constantine's name. Um, and he's apparently, like, marking out the lines of the city, like, where the city is going to be laid. And, like, one of his advisors is like, um, Constantine, why are you walking there? And Constantine is like, I am following he who goes before me. And on the one hand, all the Christians are like, oh! <gasps> Constantine sees Jesus. The Zoroastrians, who again are kind of the dominant force of paganism at this point, are like, oh, he sees Mithra. Like, it's really unclear exactly who uh, Constantine was seeing here, if Constantine was seeing anyone at all, or what is honestly more likely, Constantine knew that he was dealing with a very delicate kind of weird political religious schism here, and as a consequence, he was playing both sides. Um, on another occasion, Constantine declared Sunday to be a day of rest and holy worship. Like, everybody had the day off from work so they could go to temple, so they could go to church, so they could go worship whoever it was. And conveniently, at this point in time, the Christians were meeting on Sundays, and the Zoroastrians were also meeting on Sundays. So if you went to worship the unconquered sun, you did so on, again, Sunday. And if you worship Jesus, you also went on Sunday. So, like, everybody is happy, and once again, it's ambiguous what exactly Constantine is himself doing. It's said that he was baptized on his deathbed. That's tough to corroborate. Um... At any rate, this is a huge change for Christendom. Christianity, all of a sudden, now that it is an approved state religion, means that, like, people are joining Christianity left and right. Because they don't have to worry about getting killed anymore. Like, the, part of the reason why Christians were as successful as they were once upon a time was because they were willing to martyr themselves. 
Like, there was a point where, you know, if you just said that you weren't a Christian, you got off the hook, and Christians were sort of, like, tempted to, you know, reject their own Christianity so they could survive, and Christians would go and get killed. Like, they would say, no, I will never give up my faith, and, you know, the Roman emperor would, like, have them executed. They would have these huge gladiatorial arenas, and they would, like, send the Christians out, and then, like, have the lions devour them. Um, or they would, like, literally, like tie them to stakes and then just set them on fire. Like, this was apparently something that happened fairly frequently in ancient Rome. Uh, but people watched this. They saw these martyrdoms occur, and they actually became a good reason to follow Christianity. If these people believed in what they believed, if they believed in this Jesus guy so much that they were willing to die horribly for the sake of this faith, well, there must be something serious going on here. And people would join up. But now, now that Christianity is legal, now that Christianity is not being persecuted, now that there aren't martyrs, people join Christianity just for the power. Um, because this is an opportunity. Because there's money to be had here. Because you can, you know, you can be a Christian and not worry about having to die. Like, the selfish can now become Christians, whether, you know, for real or just in name only, and actually enjoy some nice political benefits. But, at the same time, legitimacy also means that Christians have to get their shit together. Constantine is sick and tired of all of these heretics showing up, and all these Christian fighting going on, and all of this, you know, internecine squabble happening. So Constantine gets everybody together and says, alright, I need you to hash out what you actually believe. He gets a bunch of people from the Eastern Church and a bunch of people from the Western Church, and we have the First Ecumenical Council. And at this ecumenical council, which is the first of many, which we're not going to talk about all of them because a lot of them are really fiddly, and some of them are just hilariously incompetent, um, like the Robbers' Council. Oh God, I wish I could, you know, I wish I had the time to talk about how nonsense it is. Um, at any rate, the first one goes really well for the most part. They, you know, there is some fighting, there is definitely some disagreement, some anger, um, but a couple of heretics are very much just like smacked down here, in some cases literally. I'm pretty sure this is the one where St. Nicholas gets his reputation for punching heretics. Yeah, Santa Claus punches heretics, guys. Sure, he also brings presents to children, but it's way cooler when he punches heretics. Like, there was this great moment where he like punched the one heretic, and Constantine like put them all in jail and was like, all right, you guys have to play nice. And also, St. Nicholas, you need to leave. Like, just, this is how history works, folks. You thought Christian history was boring? Yeah, you were wrong. There's so much punching going on and so much political nonsense. Anyway, the really important thing that the First Ecumenical Council hashes out is the Trinity. Now, we haven't talked about the Trinity to this point, largely because the Trinity is not technically a biblical concept, like the word Trinity never appears in the New Testament, but at the same time, it's very much implied. Like, Paul frequently refers to the three persons of God in quick succession, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as a consequence, when all of these Christian theologians get together and they're like, alright, time to get our shit together, no more heretics, what do we actually believe about this Jesus guy and how he relates to God? The ultimate answer is that God exists in three persons. The Father, namely the God of the Old Testament, the God who, you know, receives prayers, who does judgment, who, like, burns up Sodom and Gomorrah, who, you know, is generous, who appears to Moses, apparently, um, the God who inspires the, the prophets, although, again, now we're already 
sort of crossing genres here. Um, we have the Father, the God who is, you know, the one that Jesus himself prays to, but we also have God the Son, namely Jesus, the one who was walking around for 30 years, and curing the blind, and helping, you know, the lame to walk, and delivering occasionally really barbed invectives against Pharisees, and who also went on the cross and died, presumably for sins. Like, that's another part of God. And what's more, there is also this third part, the Holy Spirit, which is the actual thing that inspires prophets, and the part of God that exists in all Christendom, that is, links them all together. The, the God that informs, like, actual theological, ecumenical discussions, and the inspiration of the Word, like, all of that. Um, and what's important is that they say that all three of these persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are all individually God. Like, they have all of God's power, they have all of God's wisdom and insight with some specific limitations in certain situations, but they are all 100%, 100% totally God. Like, Father is God, Son is God, Holy Spirit is God. No exceptions, no caveats. But at the same time, the whole complex, the whole set of three is God, 100% God, with all of his powers, all of his abilities, etc., etc. Um, if this doesn't make any sense to you, that's fine. It doesn't make any sense to anybody. Like, even at the time, they're like, yeah, this does not make sense. It is not rational. It defies rationality. Like, the very basic laws of non-contradiction, that, like, you know, a thing cannot also be not the same thing. Like, this is all thrown out the window by this doctrine, but it's also sort of unavoidable um, from reading the New Testament. Like, this is just how Paul, how the Gospel writers, how everybody talks about this phenomenon. Yes, God the Father has to be God. It's kind of obvious. Yes, Jesus also has to be God. He said so. He said he was. I am the I and my Father are one, he says on multiple occasions. And yes, the Holy Spirit has to also be God. As confusing as that is, and as much as the Holy Spirit is definitely the red-headed stepchild of the, tri of the Trinity, yes, somehow that is also God with everything that goes along with it. And everybody agrees to this. Everybody. The Western Church agrees to this. The Eastern Church agrees to this. The only people who don't agree to, to this are the people who think that, like, Jesus should get, like, second billing or that he isn't actually God or other various heresies. And they are, at this point, branded heretics. They are no longer allowed to teach. They are no longer allowed to be preachers. They are exiled from the Roman Empire. Like, not acceptable behavior. We now have hard doctrine here, and a creed is created, the Nicene Creed, which states that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all God. And therefore, anyone who disagrees with this is not a Christian. They are out of the church. This is significant. The church is starting to police itself. And these theological axioms are going to stay. Like, as much as Christianity up until this point has sort of enjoyed and, like, been very diverse, now we're not going to let that happen anymore. Now there are going to be certain things that are going to be stand or fall, like either agree or get out. You're not officially a Christian. And this eliminates a lot of heresies. There are a lot of heresies that are sort of flying around in the 3rd and 4th century that the Nicene Creed specifically and kind of explicitly rejects. No more Gnosticism. No more Arianism. All that is unacceptable, heresy, not orthodox, not Christian. It's time to start drawing some lines in the sand. 
Um, and there will be multiple ecumenical councils. Like I said, we're going to have a lot of messes to clean out the years to come. Um, and indeed, some of them are going to be more tense and more tricksy than others. Uh, but that's, again, not terribly relevant to what we are doing at this particular point. What I do want to emphasize, though, is that things are changing politically for both the church and the empire. Um, as much as everybody is on the same page as far as the Nicene Creed is concerned and the First Ecumenical Council is largely a success, future ecumenical councils are going to start to break down along partisan lines. That whole East versus West distinction I talked about, where the Alexandrine East with their allegorical interpretation and the um, sort of super-ethical West with their more Tertullian-esque interpretation, uh, that's going to start becoming more and more significant over time. And as these ecumenical councils keep going on, we're going to see more and more and more of the Eastern Church taking a dominant hand. All of those patrician fathers, the guys from Alexandria, the guys from Constantinople, the guys from Antioch, those guys are going to get top billing big seats at the table, while the Roman contingent, the folks showing up from the church in Rome, are going to keep showing up a little bit later, maybe even not at all in some cases. At the very least, it's going to, they're going to get their voices drowned out more and more frequently. Um, and this is largely because the center of power of the Roman Empire is shifting to the east as well. When Constantine founded the city of Constantinople as this sort of second cultural center, as the second capital to govern the Eastern Roman Empire, as much as this was not meant to supplant the center in Rome itself, like Rome will always be the center of the Roman Empire, it is increasingly the safer place to conduct business. It is a richer city than Rome. It is a more culturally significant city than Rome. Because, again, as we stressed, the Romans are super self-conscious about the fact that the Greeks kind of ran the show culturally, and they never did successfully get Latin to supplant Greek as the language of the Roman Empire. By settling in Constantinople and just sort of letting the Greeks run the show, like, everybody's kind of happier about this. What's more, Rome is getting harder and harder to defend. Constantinople sits in the center of Roman authority and power at this point in time. It is allies on all sides. The Greeks are allies, the uh, Egyptians are allies, the, the sort of like Arabic Peninsula, all very strongly in the pocket of the church. Like, all is going well here, but meanwhile in Rome, all those Gauls and Germanias and Visigoths are starting to creep up and get more and more powerful. Rome is increasingly threatened by these groups of barbarians. And by the 5th and 6th century, when Augustine is writing, Rome will in fact fall. Um, this is it, folks, the collapse of the Roman Empire, or at least the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. And the fact of the matter is, Constantinople is just going to kind of watch as this happens. Like, the Eastern Church, the Eastern Roman Empire, they're all going to be very upset at this. Like, again, there's, this is a major symbolic defeat for the Roman Empire, a very evident shortcoming. Like, the Rome is not what it used to be, is the message here. Um, but importantly, it's also not the end of the Roman Empire. Like, as much as Rome falling due to the Goths swooping in and, like, taking over the place, looting it, even at 
one point later on in the process, taking it over and calling it their own. You know, this is this is a huge moral blow, but business as usual continues elsewhere. Um, now, as it's going to happen, like the Goths are going to also sweep through Spain. They're going to sweep into northern Africa. They're going to take over the whole northern African coast of the Mediterranean, largely because they're getting pushed out by other invading armies. You know, finally, at the end of this, we're going to get Attila the Hun showing up and trying to take over Rome before weirdly just walking away because some Christian pope talked to him for a little while. It's a whole thing. Um, suffice it to say, the Roman Empire is not what it used to be, but in the East, it's still strong. It still has a very strong identity. For our purposes, there are a couple of things we need to take away here. When Augustine is writing, he is writing in the twilight of the Roman Empire. And in fact, his second book, The City of God, the one that we read from in the textbook, um, the City of God was written in the wake of the fall of the Roman Empire. And in fact, what Augustine is writing, the reason why he calls it the City of God, is because he's very much contrasting the two. There is the city on earth, namely Rome, which has largely been considered the center of civilization, the center of culture, and indeed the center of Christianity. Remember, the Roman church is hugely powerful, hugely influential. Peter was supposedly hanging out there. It is the center of that whole Tertullian kind of philosophy. It is still an important beacon of Christian hope in the western part of the Roman Empire. Like, everyone who is around the Mediterranean who is a Christian looks to Rome for their spiritual guidance. And yet, Augustine is saying that Rome fell does not mean that Christ is God. The city of God out largely outstrips the city of man. The city of man will fall. The city of God will endure. The city of man is temporal. The city of God is eternal. Um, so Augustine is drawing a very explicit distinction here, in part because he's trying to stress, you know, Christianity isn't done, guys, just because the Goths took it over. And as it happens, the Goths are practicing Christians. Like, they were largely informed by heretics, like Arius actually had a really impressive following among the Visigoths, uh, but they're going to convert. Like they're gonna, the Christian church in Rome, even after Rome is taken over, the church is gonna still operate. It's still going to perform teachings. It's still gonna write tracts. Um, it's got a very delicate political game to play now that you're you know, satisfying not some Roman emperor who is sworn to protect you, but some fairly unpredictable Visigoth dude who's claiming to be an emperor and who is kind of just changing his mind at all times based on, you know, what he perceives to be a threat. Um, it's a delicate balance, a delicate game to play, a delicate balance to, to sort of observe, but the Christian church is strong enough to pull this off at this point. And indeed, after the Roman Empire falls in the West, after, you know, the Goths do swoop over and we enter what is largely known as the Dark Ages uh, for Europe, the church is going to be the dominant, the consistent power structure. Um, and in fact, the Pope, the head of the church in Rome, the Bishop of Rome, is going to be the most powerful person in Europe for centuries to come, which we'll get to. Um... For now, I want to emphasize where Augustine is at. Augustine is actually like a Carthaginian-ish uh, speaker and writer, again, like because the, the ancient world was, or the Roman Empire was largely circulated around the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, some of Roman strongholds are actually in North Africa. 
Um, so Augustine doesn't live in Carthage, but he does live in Hippo, or at least that's where he ends up setting up shop, largely because he's been tricked into it. It's, again, a bit of an amusing story. Um, but he takes up shop. He becomes the Bishop of Hippo, which is fairly close to Carthage in North Africa. He's going to be writing from there. He will be largely protected from the first wave of Visigoth invasion, but Hippo will, in fact, be under siege. It's just going to happen that Augustine dies before it gets taken over. Um, although he may very well have seen that coming in one sense or another. Augustine was also a heretic puncher. Um, he didn't actually punch any heretics, but he did write quite a few treatises fighting the Albigensian heresy, um, or rather the earlier state of the Albigensian heresy. I suddenly forget who it was who founded this particular heresy. Oh, well, I hope I remember by the time I teach that class. Um, Pelagius. It was Pelagius. Screw that guy. Friggin' Pelagius. Uh, Augustine frequently fought the Pelagian heresy, which is one that basically stressed that humans were free to defy God's will. Augustus, or Augustine was rather arguing that, like, God's will is, you know, permanent, and therefore humans have limited free will at best. Yet another one of those big Christian theological discussions that we really don't have time to get into. Um, but on the flip side, at the same time as I want to stress that, like, Augustine is hanging around in Carthage-ish territory, and therefore is very much informed by the Roman Church, and is also very much informed by the Neoplatonic philosophy that's been circulating. Like, remember we talked about how the school, the academy, had kind of like split into the Stoics and the Epicureans and the, the academics, the skeptics. Um, well, now in the 3rd and 4th century, they've been reuniting again into this common school, the Neoplatonists, um, which are taking a large part of Stoicism and Skepticism and combining it into, yet again, a sort of whole new Platonic system, largely led by this fellow named Plotinus, who is putting it all together and, and writing some very important philosophical works at the time. Augustine is reading Plotinus and very much adopting a lot of what he has to say, because Augustine Augustine has been around the block. Um, he studied under many heretics, including the Manichees. Like, he got very hardcore into Manichaeism at one point. But he very much got his nose broken by Ambrose, and everything is, you know, he, that was his sort of spiritual father, so, so to speak. Ambrose was like a hardcore bishop in, in you know, Italy uh, at the time. Anyway, Augustine is on the straight and narrow now, but he brings a lot of Platonic philosophy in with him um, between Ambrose and, and Marcius and other dudes. Um, and it turns out the Neoplatonic uh, philosophy maps quite neatly on Christendom, which, again, we'll talk about. Um, but before we get into the whole theological discussion in the West, I do want to talk about what's happening in the East as well. Um, because this is... This is not something we're going to talk about a whole heck of a lot. The Eastern Church very much branches it off, branches off and does its own thing, and as much as it's got its own rich history and tradition, we should probably like do all of our history of the Eastern Church right here and now, so we know what's going on and we answer any potential questions you have. We close up this plot thread in time for us to sort of focus wholeheartedly on the West and the future. Um, so like I said, the Western Roman Empire has largely fallen. The Visigoths have largely taken it over. But the Eastern Roman Empire continues to thrive. Um, there are quite a few battles here, like the Persians are having a golden age at the same time as the, the Eastern Roman Empire is, you know, struggling to survive. Um, so you get, like, 
all sorts of interesting stuff there, especially with Emperor Justinian hanging out in the Eastern Roman Empire and very much sort of founding what will become the Byzantine Empire. Um, it's this whole thing. Suffice it to say that this is also where the Western Church and the Eastern Church really do become estranged from one another. Between the fact that now the Roman Empire in the West has fallen and the Western Church is now dealing with a whole different set of like obligations and objectives and power structures than we are seeing in the Eastern Church, as well as the fact that the Eastern Church very much is in the pocket of the Roman emperors as they still exist, the Byzantine emperors, they are absolutely forming two very distinct functions. Um, in the Eastern Church, that diversity is still very much emphasized. Each of the individual churches, the church in Alexandria, the church in Constantinople, the church in Antioch, all of these still have distinct identities, and it is very much the diversity of these churches that's emphasized. Rather than centralizing all of the churches around the church in Constantinople, which some of the emperors have kind of pushed for, ultimately the church is sort of settling into this attitude where it thinks that, like, there are three or four autonomous power structures that we should all observe, and whatever they agree upon, that's what Christianity is. Um, nobody gets to say what is true Orthodox Christianity and what is not Orthodox Christianity. Um, what instead happens is you talk to, like, these five churches, Rome, Constantinople, Antioch, Alexandria, notice that, like, most of them are in the East, um, and that's what will go. Um, but increasingly, Rome is not interested in doing this, because, again, Rome is very separate from the Eastern Church, and getting to the Eastern Church is getting particularly difficult for the Roman Church, because, again, things aren't safe anymore. The Goths have taken over the place. There are barbarians, and there are pirates, and it's just not safe to travel the way that it was under the, you know, United Empire uh, under the actual Roman emperor, emperors. Um, so the one or two times Rome actually does show up to one of the big discussions, they're kind of eager to take over the whole conversation. Um, they are very much emphasizing, hey, we are the church that Peter, the Pope, founded. And at this point, we're starting to use the term Pope as though the bishop in Rome is somehow significantly more powerful and significantly more authoritative than all of the patriarchs, that's the term that they're using, over in the East. So when the current pope of Rome or his representative shows up at one of these councils and starts pushing his weight around, like, you guys have to listen to us, we are in charge, we inherited the keys of the kingdom, and in fact they're pushing across this new creed that nobody has agreed to, like, it becomes a huge problem, and ultimately it's just serving to further separate them. There isn't, like, the date of the Great Schism is kind of unclear. People usually point to the 11th century CE, so we're talking about, like, moving forward quite a bit here. Um, but it's already in the works, as early as 6th and 5th century CE. Um, the fact of the matter is, this is going to yield two independent churches. On the one hand, you have the Catholic Church, which you know and love today. They're the same Catholics who are hanging around, although their theology has changed rather dramatically in that time. Uh, on the other hand, you have the Orthodox Church. And you'll notice that today, when we talk about the Orthodox Church, you usually have some kind of country standing in front of the term Orthodox Church. So there's a Greek Orthodox Church, and there's a Russian Orthodox Church, and there's the Coptic Church, and there's like the Bulgarian Orthodox Church. Like, all of these are largely separate entities. And there's a reason for that. Rem 
remember, the Eastern Church was largely emphasizing the autonomy of these churches. Antioch and Alexandria and Constantinople were all allowed to believe subtly different things, as long as they navigated between the major claims of the ecumenical councils and what is obviously in the Bible. Um, but what's more, the Eastern Church is getting killed little bit by little bit over like 500 years here. That whole 500 AD to 1000 AD period is largely defined by various other people kind of chipping away at the church and its holdings, or rather at the Byzantine Empire and its holdings. Um, down south around Egypt, they're getting gradually chipped away by the Visigoths and whoever is currently controlling them. Once Islam springs onto the scene in the 6th and 7th centuries, they're starting to chip away at the churches, and indeed Islam is sort of adopting a lot of Christian churches, and either converting them to Islam or kind of just protecting them under their own auspices. And remember, we talked about how there were, you know, disparate churches anyway, like that Ethiopian church that has been hanging around for like 700 years at this point, doing its own thing, regardless of what the other churches may have been talking about. So, as a consequence, the Eastern Church is profoundly fragmented because increasingly it's difficult for everybody to be on the same page. The Coptic Church, which is largely the church that's hanging around in Egypt, is at, at one point cut off from the rest of the Byzantine Empire and churches. And as a consequence, it develops a whole different tradition, following a whole different set of patriarchs, following a whole different kind of lineage. Um, Later, you'll have things like the Russian Orthodox Church being founded by, you know, initially Byzantine sort of missionaries and, and theologians, but ultimately they too are going to be cut off from the rest of the Byzantine Church as the empire shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. Um, it even comes to a head with the Bulgarian Church, because, like, that one's close enough to the Catholics that the Catholics are really grumpy that the Byzantines are making inroads on it. So as much as, like, Bulgarian Orthodox is a thing, there's also, like, an arm of the Bulgarian Church that is, in fact, hyper-Catholic. Like, it's a whole thing. And it gets really complicated, and we definitely do not have time to talk about each of the individual, you know, Orthodox churches and their own specific set of beliefs and their own heritage. Like, I don't even, I'm not qualified to talk about it. I haven't studied it extensively. I know the basics here, but it's a whole other matter. What's more, you know, Constantinople will remain this kind of bastion against the invading forces, but Islam is very much going to take over the whole shebang. Um, in a matter of time, like most of Asia Minor, lots of the, like the entire Arabian Peninsula, Egypt, you know, Northern Africa, all of that is going to be controlled by Islam gradually spreading and growing over time. Um, so again, that just, like Islam is actually super tolerant in practice of the Christian churches that are sort of held under its wing. Like they're always encouraged to convert. Um, but uh, Muhammad in, in the, the Quran has some very pointed things to say about not being able to convert people by force. Um, so as a consequence, most Islamic scholars, and again, there's like lots of political dissension and stuff there, which we definitely don't have time to talk about here, maybe a little bit next time. Um, all of that very much sort of yields a very kind of laissez-faire attitude towards the Christians. They are sort of considered the brothers to the Muslims, but at the same time they are encouraged to convert, and sometimes there are problems, and sometimes there are not, sometimes they have to go underground, and sometimes it's okay. Like, it's a whole thing. Suffice it to say, the Eastern Church fragments. 
fragments and fragments and fragments again until there is no single source that is the authority for all of the churches in the East. Um, either because they've been taken over by completely different powers or because there's no, you know, centralized government that can sort of be pointed to as a central authority. It's a mess. You should know that it's a mess. You should be roughly aware of what kind of a mess it is, but also don't get worked up over it if you can't remember all of these different kinds of churches. Just know there is a schism, a huge schism, the first great schism that separates the Catholic Church from the Eastern Church, and the Eastern Church is just going to progressively get nibbled by a thousand little bites until ultimately it is just this completely diffused, completely decentralized thing with very little agreement between any of its sort of smaller churches that have sprung from it. Catholicism, on the other hand, is going to have its own sort of problems. Again, because the Visigoths take over the place and now, you know, the world, the Eastern or the Western European world is plunged into this dark age um, without this centralized leadership, without some, you know, Roman Empire sort of hanging over it, there are a couple things you need to know about the medieval world as it's going to come to be. First off, they're always looking back at Rome. Um, Rome is the authority that was, and increasingly over time, people are going to look back at the new power structures and sort of claim their authority as deriving from Rome in some sense. Like virtually all of the kings in Western Europe, including the British king, is going to say we are you know, the proper recipient of the authority of the Roman Empire, and therefore you know, we inherit our greatness from the emperors of old. What's more, um, as the church becomes sort of the, the power, the force that takes over the, the power vacuum here, um, through the first 500 years, again, the Dark Ages proper from like 500 CE to about 1000 CE, the church is the authority here. Like they are not just a religious authority, but a political authority. Like, whoever controls the church, i.e. whoever controls Italy, where the church is hanging out, will typically be the most powerful, like, political force in Western Europe. Um, now, at this point, like, Islam has actually pushed all the way across Northern Africa and has actually invaded Spain, and this is going to be a constant threat to the West, and multiple crusades will be sent to Spain to try and liberate it from the darn... Muslim heretics, as far as the Catholic Church is concerned. Um, but at the same time, like, that's honestly one of the most stable power structures in Europe at this point. Like, up until 1000 CE, you know, it's just a giant mess. And it's a mess in the church as well. Like, as much as the, the Roman Catholic Church, as we're now starting to call it, is very much enamored with its own authority as much as they are convinced that like the Pope wields the authority of Peter who wields the authority of heaven like as much as they think that this one dude is now responsible for deciding what is going on with Christianity across the board that one dude is very much subject to a lot of potential political drama and infighting um, and in fact like in the latter part of this period like between the ninth and through the 8th and 10th centuries, there is so much turnover. Like, popes are murdering each other, they're poisoning each other. Um, like, there's a lot of nepotism going on because the pope is, like, having families and, you know, like, they're trying to pass on the papacy to the next person in line just as though it were a monarchy. We'll get to that. Um, 
it's a giant friggin' mess, and nobody is authoritative here, and there are frequently anti-popes that are raised up by various political factions who are trying to achieve legitimacy and, you know, have beef with whoever the current actual pope is. It's a, it's a giant friggin' nightmare. That's why they call it the Dark Ages. Um, in the midst of this, in the 11th century, the Pope at the time, who turns out to be fairly secure and authoritative, like we're enjoying a surprising period of prosperity at this point. Um, in the 11th century, the Pope actually raises up this new institution, the Holy Roman Empire, um, starting with Charlemagne the Great, who will take over basically all of Western Europe and unite it for the first time ever. And now, because the Pope is giving this authority to Charlemagne, the relationship of the papacy to political power has radically changed. Now it is the church that gives political power to other things. Whereas before, again, it was the pope who like lived under the auspices of the Roman emperor. You know, the church, to some degree, had to be subservient to the empire's will. Now it's very much the other way around. And this, again, draws its authority from Rome. Like, again, it's the Holy Roman Emperor who is who is pointed out here. Like, he derives his authority from the Roman Empire that was. And while the, the Holy Roman Empire is not going to be these totally authoritative, 100% powerful, like, really awesome, you know, unified Europe political force that the Pope kind of envisions it to be, um, eventually it's going to very much get whittled down to what we call Germany today. Like, that's going to be the whole Holy Roman Empire, and it is going to be this sort of dissociated series of, you know, duchies and little petty kings and lords and stuff who are all, you know, supposedly operating under the banner of the Holy Roman Emperor. Um, as much as that's going to kind of be the, the limit of its scope, for a while there, this is the power structure in Europe. Like, for a good century or so, that, that's what's going down. This also happens to be the century where we're doing all of our crusades, so that's fun. Like, again, the Pope is at this point powerful enough that he can, like, command armies and wield significant wealth in order to, you know, get shit done, including sending a whole bunch of very, very very disorganized knights and soldiers over to Jerusalem to hopefully liberate it from the Muslims, to liberate it from Islam, which they do in fact do at one point. Not for very long, mind you. Like, Islam immediately strikes back and, like, wipes them out. Uh, thank you, Saladin. You're awesome. Um, but yeah, it's a giant shit show. Um, and by the 13th century, it's become such a giant shit show that the Pope sends a whole bunch of people to liberate Jerusalem again, and they totally fail, and in the process end up taking over Constantinople instead, which wipes out the last vestiges of the Byzantine Empire. Oops! Oh well. Christians killing Christians, what you gonna do? Um, at any rate, it's the whole giant political mess. I don't want to get too caught up in it because it's not too terribly relevant to what's going on in our class. What I do want to emphasize, though, is the way that the social structure worked. Again, this is a whole new dynamic, and while it does model itself fairly closely to the classical dynamics of old, I do want to stress how love works at this point in time. We're not going to get too deep into it. Like, we're going to have our whole courtly love discussion next time when we're going to talk about how the Islamic world influences this as well as how it shows up in, like, Arthurian romance and stuff like that. Um, but I do want to emphasize the way that kind of monarchy works 
as opposed to, you know, our, our little petty city-state lords and stuff of old when we were talking about Greece and Rome and so on. Um, just because, again, we need to sort of keep in mind how are people doing relationships in order to understand what the philosophers are actually saying about love, friendship, all of that stuff. Monarchy, or feudalism as we, we are kind of prone to call it in this particular period, um, it is very much a top-down structure, always has been. Um, kings, for what that's worth, because again, like, there is no France, there is no England, there is no Germany, there is no, you know, like, none of the nations that we normally identify with Europe have sort of materialized at this point in medieval history. Um, that's way down the pike. Um, but there are kings who govern a substantial amount of territory. Um, and these kings will usually have subservient lords of various stripes and kinds, be they dukes or barons or counts or whatever. I fail to appreciate the nuance for every single nation at every single moment in history. It's, again, a giant mess and everybody does this differently. Um, kings will have lords, lords will have estates in much the same way that the ancient Greeks would have had lords with their estates. Um, so when there's a war to be had, if one king is getting touchy with another king, so like King of France and the King of Britain are fighting again for like the umpteenth, umpteenth billionth time, um, then the king was going to rouse up all their lords, the lords are going to rouse up all their peasants, and they're all going to go and fight together. Um, so while the Greek model of like the lord who owns his estate and has his servants and his slaves and so on is very much alive and well at this point, there is a greater hierarchical structure in place. And importantly for our purposes, it is a hierarchical structure that derives its authority and its power from Christianity. Um, all of these lords, all of these kings are professedly Christian. Heck, at this point in time, virtually everyone is professedly Christian in Western Europe, except for the people who obviously aren't, like the Muslims, who, you know, everybody's kind of grumpy about and definitely wants to kick back out of Spain. Um, or alternatively, if you have, like, traders from other empires and stuff bumming around, which doesn't happen terribly often, to be perfectly honest. This isn't even a matter of, like, people are rejecting the religion. Christianity is something kind of assumed in this worldview. Um, in the medieval world, post-Roman Empire. Like, everybody is Christian because there is just nothing else to be. Um, like, you will occasionally find pockets of pagans. Like, there is, in fact, a supposedly thriving Druidic community hanging around in England at this time. And presumably there are similar communities in other parts of Europe. They are very much the minority. They are very much considered an aberration, and they are not typically tolerated all that well. Likewise, there are, in fact, pockets of Jews in various places in Western Europe. They typically do not do terribly well, though, because when a crusade tends to, you know, get off the ground and tries to march all the way across Europe to, you know, Jerusalem or whoever we're invading today... Um, they will often try and scrounge up supplies by raiding a couple of Jewish outposts along the way, because racism is very alive and well at this point in time, um, at least insofar as it is justified as religious differences, and therefore Jews are basically next to pagans and are more than welcome to be, you know, conquered at a moment's notice. Um, suffice it to say, Christianity is the game in town. You are either Christian or you are an outsider and therefore possibly subject to all sorts of terrible shit happening to you. Um, 
So, again, Christianity is assumed. It's not even a matter of people pretending to be Christians in order to fit in. No, like, that doesn't even occur to most people. Like, Christianity is how they were born. Christianity is how they were raised. Christianity is all around them at all times. Of course we are all Christians. It is basically tantamount to saying, are you human? Like, you are part of the confederacy of Christianity. We are all Christian brothers here. This is just how the universe works. Um, which means that, again, the Pope, the Christian Church, the Roman Catholic Church, which for the most part is still hanging around Italy doing its thing, um, is going to be an authority over most kings and most lords. Um, kings and lords will occasionally get excommunicated by the church for political reasons for one reason or another, like if in fact the you know French king invades the Holy Roman land, like the, the Pope may very well step in and be like, all right, I excommunicate the French king, and all the peasants of the French king are like, dude, you gotta fix this, we can't be excommunicated, we're all gonna go to hell, and the king's like, oh shit, and he's will have to, you know, do penance or, you know, basically kiss the Pope's boots in order to get back on his good graces. Um, so, again, like, Christianity is very much a political force in addition to being a religious force at this point in time. Do not, do not underestimate the authority that it has here. Um, but at the same time, I also want to stress that it is changing. Um, again, one of the things that I definitely wanted to stress about our whole discussion here is how, you know, love relationships are changing um, throughout this period. And on the one hand, we do see a lot of similarities to the classical regime and the way that the kings and, and you know, lords are behaving. On the other hand, they are again informed by Christianity. So there aren't nearly as many concubines hanging around, and adultery is still very much frowned upon. Fornication is still very much frowned upon. There are no public kings, you know, sleeping with various women at all times going on here. Because, again, if they're doing that, the Pope is going to crack down on them and excommunicate them, and then the people are going to be really mad, and then the king's going to have to, you know, get his shit together or potentially lose his authority. It's real easy to depose an unpopular king at this point in time if you've got, you know, a couple of well-placed lords and maybe an assassin or two lying around. Um, so it is in the king's best interests to toe the line. So once again, we're in a situation where your wife is this major political economic necessity, where this is where we're going to be forming important alliances, and where, you know, adultery is basically tantamount to treason because it is breaking up those alliances and potentially supplanting some ill-blooded bastard with some actual true-blooded king. And blood is everything at this point. The noble lines are absolutely, like, 100% followed to the letter here. Uh, the king, as a consequence, isn't doing nearly as much hanky-panky as they used to. Like, there are ways around this. Uh, again, there is a very popular, if utterly unspoken, tradition that is alive and well of kings basically, you know, doing anal penetration on basically anyone they can get a hold of, because you don't have to worry about them accidentally producing an heir and thus mucking up the whole business. You know, you can, you can uh, screw somebody up the butt and not have any consequences to deal with. So, very popular at this point in time, that sodomy stuff, as much as it is, again, a mortal sin and frowned upon by the church, absolutely. Um, but again, you don't have to tell anyone, so what's the big deal? Um, likewise, if you're you know, queen is not producing enough male heirs, there is a fairly like great likelihood that she will, you know, die 
somehow, like in labor, or shortly after labor, or in an unrelated accident that is totally not anybody's fault and could not absolutely be, you know, pinned down to somebody, you know, stabbing them in the back or something. Like, this happens. Um, also, a very popular way of making sure that you get heirs for your, for your kingdom. Um, the more acceptable tradition is, you know, you, you, like, have your daughter marry some dude from another royal family and thus ensure that they're going to survive. But this is, again, unpopular because it doesn't, like, actually preserve the family line. Um, you know, nobody gets to keep names in this situation. It's a mess. It's just a giant mess. Like, can we all just agree that it's a mess? Suffice it to say, though, that because there is a little bit more flexibility, because the marriage bond is in fact more binding now that you've got all those Christian watchdogs hanging over you, making sure that like you're not trying to pull any hanky-panky, love is actually growing in strength, in a manner of speaking. Like Christianity was always excited about love in one respect or another, but now it's kind of becoming, if anything, even bigger, more important, which, again, we'll talk about in our next discussion. The other thing that I want to talk about, though, is the way that the church is changing over this period of time. Like, we talked about the political differences. We've gotten to basically as far as I want to go with this discussion with the, you know, what is the medieval worldview actually doing. Um, but I also want to take a step back and show some of the steps and some of the more important uh, religious ideas and doctrines that are taking place during this period. The things that are especially influential and especially important to our discussion of love and friendship. And the first thing I want to definitely talk about is going all the way back to Augustine and going all the way back to like the fall of the Roman Empire and even earlier. I want to talk about Stoicism. Um, again, when we talked about Christianity in its purest New Testament form, you could see a lot of things that sounded like Stoicism. That chunk of Paul that we read in 1 Corinthians, especially 1 Corinthians 7, like, it reeks of Stoicism. This whole idea that, you know, like, yeah, I guess you can marry if you absolutely have to, but it will, you know, divert your attention from God, and, you know, you'll, you'll care about the things of the world where you should be caring about the things of heaven. Like, there's a sort of begrudging acceptance of... Um, like marriage and sexuality, but only within the confines of marriage. Um, but even that is sort of like not something that Paul is terribly psyched about. He would rather people stay single, rather they focus their 100% attentions on God. And that does smack strongly of Stoicism. But again, because Tertullian is sort of the, the underlying dude behind the whole Roman tradition, the whole Roman church, and because he is even more Stoic, Stoic Stoicism and Christianity very much end up becoming allies in this early Christian period. And by the time that Augustine is writing, you can see that Augustine is hardcore Stoic. Like, he is way more critical of his own sexual liaisons. He is way more critical of even his friendships in the same way that Cicero was sort of alarmed by, you know, friendships that potentially violated his, his codes of ethics. Augustine is very much questioning friendship with respect to religion and, and Christianity. Like, notice that whole passage in, in Book 4 where he's talking about his friend who died and, like, he was on his deathbed and he got baptized and Augustine is, like, making fun of it when his friend w snaps out of it. And his friend's like, dude, get out of here. Like, that, this, do not mess with this. And then he does, in fact, actually die. And Augustine is, like, 
heartbroken by this. Not just because his friend rejected him, but because, like, in hindsight, Augustine is looking at his behavior and he's like, I was trying to kill him. Like, there's no wonder. He was presented with eternal life. Like, he was baptized. His Christianity had guaranteed his salvation. And here was I trying to corrupt him, trying to turn him into a pagan again. I nearly damned my friend in a very literal sense. Augustine is very much sort of combining his stoic self-examination attitude with his Christianity here. And the two do make for fairly natural compliments, but they also bring out fairly strong characteristics in the other. Stoicism makes Christianity into a much more austere practice and religion than it would probably have given its own druthers. Likewise, Christianity turns Stoicism into a matter of literal life and death, eternal life or eternal death. Um, and out of this tradition, sort of parallel with the rise of the papacy and parallel to all of these disparate churches becoming their own thing, out of this also comes the monasteries um, and the monks generally. There has been an ascetic tradition, like a tradition of people who are, you know, very austere, very careful, very, you know, re resisting the temptations of sexuality, of, you know, strong food, drink, all of that, um, dating back as early as, like, the first and second centuries in Christendom. Like, early, early Christians would occasionally just wander out into the desert and live there like, subsisting on nothing but, like, the barest minimum of food and water, doing crap jobs for a tiny amount of money, and basically thinking that this was the most pure form of Christianity they could practice. Again, this is sort of the logical, like, apex, the logical climax of this union between Christianity and Stoicism. You have all of these Christians who take it upon themselves to purify themselves, just go out into the woods, have no connections to any other human beings, and just live this completely fanatical, exiled, um, like, total pariah existence. Um, and eventually, while some of these some of these practices will continue long into Christian history. Like, you will hear stories of holy fools as late as, like, the 19th century in Russia. Um, like, people still go out into the wilderness and just, like, live completely cut off from other human beings in order to practice their faith. There's also, out of this, a sort of tradition of communal Christian exile, in a manner of speaking, namely the monasteries. Um, and as much as this starts is kind of like, let's all just hang out together, just Christians, completely removed from the temptations of the world, with just enough money to get by, sort of living on this commune existence. Um, as much as that's very much the, the starting point of the idea, the idea very much spreads and becomes very flexible throughout the medieval period and throughout early Christianity. Like, by the 10th and 11th centuries, there are monasteries all throughout Europe, and that's very much where the work of Christian theology is happening. These are well-read, well-educated you know, people. They are have a decent amount of leisure time at their disposal, and they are 100% immersed in Christian teaching all of the time. Um, and as a consequence, these monks are writing important letters to each other, sort of probing at the boundaries of Christian theology, and very much pioneering a lot of the ideas that we're going to be talking about in this class. Um, 
in addition to the sort of mainline Roman Catholicism, the power structures underlying the papacy and the priesthood, there is also this secondary Christian line through the monasteries that is very much going to have an increased influence over the papacy and over Catholicism as time goes on through medieval Europe. And I want to emphasize this because a lot of the Christian theology that we identify with Catholicism today springs more from the monastic tradition than it does from the mainline papacy tradition or from the New, Te New Testament. Um, importantly, celibacy. This is the one that I definitely want to focus on because it is so important to our discussion of love and friendship and the whole shebang. Celibacy is not necessarily a Christian idea, or at least not an originally Christian idea, or not an original Christianity idea. Like, as much as Paul seems to be suggesting, hey, be celibate, it's probably the best way to do Christianity, he's also quick to say, but if you're married, stay married. Like, it's too late. You've already done your one flesh thing. And John, on the other hand, he has nothing to say about celibacy. Most of the Christian teachers don't. Um, Paul is the only one who really seems to be enforcing celibacy in any in any real sense in the New Testament. Like, Jesus doesn't talk about it. He's not saying, you know, leave your wives in order to follow me. Like, he's picking guys who didn't have wives to follow him, which is significant and important and may very well contribute to this idea. But he's not going out of his way to say, you know, don't get married. And importantly, most bishops up until the 10th and 11th century, i.e. most cardinals, most people who would be in line for the Pope, and indeed most popes, were married up until this point. Catholicism did not enforce celibacy in the priesthood until well after um, most of the period that we're talking about here. In fact, if I remember correctly, it's only with the reforms in the 13th century that uh, priesthood and the Pope the papacy are now forced to be celibate. Like, it's going to be 1,300 years of Christendom before celibacy becomes what priests and popes and bishops and cardinals all have to do. Um, I want to stress that. Like, love is not rejected outright the way that we usually imagine it in Christendom today. Um, this is relatively new. I say relatively, because it's still like 800 years old, but still, relatively. 800 years old, not 2,000 years old, is what we're getting at here. Um, and I want to emphasize, though, that it is in the works. Like, Augustine himself is saying in the Confessions frequently that he wishes he were strong enough to be celibate. He emphasizes this often. Like, he talks about how he is extremely tempted by women all the time, that, like, in his youth and in his early adulthood, he absolutely is keeping a mistress, like, full-time. She's practically his wife for all intents and purposes, but she's not legitimate, and everybody knows that she's not legitimate, and everybody is upset about it, and his mother especially is encouraging him, get rid of her, forget an actual wife. Um, and, in fact, Augustine is not going to do this, and he is, once he finally converts to Christianity, going to remain celibate and actually preach and practice it. Like, in, even in his passage on the city of God, notice how hard he comes down in favor of celibacy, how hard he comes down against, like, sexual interaction of any kind. And in fact, it's the Augustinian tradition that is going to be the, like, proper doctrine for Roman Catholicism for many years to come. Um, to the point that if you read the Catechism today, it literally says that, like, yes, husbands and wives are allowed 
to have sexuality, but the pleasure they take in it is in fact a sin. Like, that is pure lust. Um, the Christian church, as much as it's going to allow marriage, as much as it's going to encourage sexuality, as much as it's not going to take a terribly strong stance against sexuality until much later in its time period, it is still strongly suggested through Augustine and many other Christian religious leaders like Tertullian, like all of these Christians very much informed by Stoicism, it is largely considered sinful to want sex. Even if it is legitimate marriage-related sex, it is largely considered bad news. And I think that's as much a, a factor of Stoicism as it is one of Christianity. Like, you'll notice, you know, Paul does seem to imply in 1 Corinthians that, like, lust and desire for sexuality is bad. Like, he is ultimately saying, you know, yeah, get married in order to control that, in order to, you know, prevent yourself from sinning. You know, better to marry than to burn with passion, the ESV writes. The KJV leaves out the with passion part. Um, better to marry than to, you know, sin or, you know, sit there just whiling away, suffering and being tempted all the time. Um, that's very much what Paul is emphasizing there. But he's not saying that, like you know, sexual temptation is in itself wrong. He is insinuating it, he is implying it, he seems to be taking that stance, while, you know, other New Testament writers don't seem to be taking that stance. But by the first and second century, again, as Stoicism and Christianity are sort of hanging out together, as one is very much informing the other, it very much becomes an entrenched part of Christian tradition in some circles, and especially the monastic circles, that to be a proper Christian, one also has to be celibate. One also cannot practice sexuality of any kind. And indeed, as Augustine will conclude, all sexuality is temptation. All, sec all desire for sex is sin. Now, Augustine is not going to be 100% adopted uh, throughout like the medieval period. Like Most people are going to consider Augustine an important authority, an important Christian writer. Aquinas, who we're going to get to in the coming weeks, is going to very much stress Augustine's emphasis and importance. But at the same time, not everybody is on the same page here. Um, some people are going to instead embrace sexuality, say that love is a perfectly reputable thing to do, and indeed the love of you know man and woman, the sexual love, the eros, if you will, of you know the of like human beings is at least neighboring to the agape you know charity love that Paul and others are talking about in the New Testament. Um, they're not mutually exclusive at the very least, and we'll see how that gets complicated in our discussion about courtly love. Um, but I also want to stress that there are two sides to this discussion. On the one hand, the papacy, mainline Catholicism, doesn't have a problem with sexuality, with sexual desire. That is very much something growing out of the more stoic-informed monastic tradition. Um, but at the same time, the monastic tradition is going to triumph. Like in the 13th century, the monastic tradition will reform the mainline Catholic Church, and now all priests, all bishops, all uh, cardinals, all popes are going to have to remain celibate. Both streaks are here. The question that I want to sort of bring to your attention, though, is how much of this is foreign to Christianity as it's talked about in the New Testament. You know, 
as I've been emphasizing over and over in this class, I want you to be putting these pieces together, to coming to your own conclusions, to decide for yourself how the story of these philosophical ideas, how the story of love and friendship has changed over the many years that we're talking about here in this class. This is one of the big-time questions that I want to pose to you. Is the sort of condemnation of sexuality something that is more Christian or more secular? More Stoic or more Pauline? Is it something that is, you know, in the roots of Christianity, that it is always there, that it is always something that was likely to spring out of it? Or is it something informed by external sources? Um, Foucault, again, because we can't have these conversations without me inevitably coming back to Foucault, uh, Foucault in his second book on the history of sexuality tends to argue that it is a more secular idea than it is a Christian idea, um, that there are more influences on you know, restraining oneself from sexuality evident in Stoicism and the Roman traditions that we've talked about earlier than there are in the Jewish and the early Christian traditions, except insofar as the two keep bumping into each other, insofar as you get guys like Tertullian saying that, yes, in order to properly practice Christianity, you also have to be a Stoic first. Um, it's complicated. And I want you to sort of try and parse this out for yourself. Honestly, if, like, if you're really curious about it, do some more research. Read some of the early Christian fathers. See what they have to say. You know, go online and see what summaries and what explanations of this period bring up. Because it is complicated. It's woven together. Um, and it's not entirely clear how much of this is, you know, Christianity following its own tendencies and how much of it is being influenced from outside. It's complicated. But what I do want to stress here, what I, the reason why I had you read Augustine, even though we didn't end up discussing him all that much in this, in this particular discussion in class, is because he is emblematic of this change that is taking place. He is absolutely this pivotal figure who is sort of recapitulating and summarizing all of the Christian theologians and scholars who have come beforehand, while also incorporating the Neoplatonic tradition, the, the you know new versions of Greek and Roman philosophy united in the person of Plotinus and, and Marcius. Like, he's adopting this philosophy, pairing it with Christianity, and building basically what is going to be the foundation for all medieval thought to come. And indeed, people are going to keep going back to Augustine. He's not 100% authoritative, and there are medieval scholars who will depart from him, sure, but especially once we get to Aquinas and once we get to the Reformation, Augustine is just going to be even more important. He's going to become even more foundational. His attitudes are one of the most important for understanding Christianity in its, in its entirety, both today and then. And what I want to stress is that Augustine is getting his information from more than just the Bible. Like, as much as he is repeating over and over again in the Confessions, you know, as much as he is addressing the Confessions themselves to God, he is always engaged in this kind of constant ongoing prayer, notice that the way that he talks about his own life, the way that he talks about sin and sinning with his friends, like, by stealing the pears, how he talks about temptation and his lust for women. Like, it is all very different from the way that it is presented in the New Testament. There's obviously other things going on here. And in the Confessions, much as this is not the part that we've read, 
Augustine is pretty quick to describe the other influences that are going on in his life. The fact that he is following all of these other important scholars, how he is studying, you know, yes, heretics like Manichaeism, but also important scholars like Ambrose, like Tertullian. He is reading the Bible hand-in-hand hand as he is reading the Neoplatonic scholars. He is a very well-educated dude, and a very well-educated dude who is synthesizing multiple traditions in order to come up with his own ideas. And what's more important, I want you to notice, remember how I, we talked about the schism between the Eastern Church and the Western Church, how we've got the Orthodox Church on the one hand and the you know, Roman Catholic Church on the other. Orthodoxy had largely split off before Augustine was writing. Augustine doesn't have nearly the influence in the Orthodox Eastern Church as he does in the West, largely because he is an offshoot of that Roman tradition. He is informing the Roman tradition, which means that the papacy is going to adopt what he has to say as part of the annals of the Church, as part of the most important teachings that the greatest saints have offered. And indeed, it is Saint Augustine of Hippo. He is, in fact, a saint canonized by the Church. Enough miracles were performed in his presence, enough you know, important teachings are presented by him. He is a huge part of Catholic tradition, and tradition is a huge part of the Western Catholic Church. So keep this in mind. He is divisive, and he is not the voice of all Christianity at all times ever. And in fact, I want you to have read the confessions with the New Testament in mind. That's why we read them back to back. On the one hand, you can see Augustine regularly quoting even the very passages that we talked about. Like, he's got that whole chunk at the beginning of the first chapter where he is quoting all of that stuff from 1 Corinthians 7. The better to marry than to burn. And the better to stay, to not get caught up in the, the you know, desires of the world by, you know, getting married and then getting caught up in these things. He is absolutely coming from a New Testament perspective, but he is quoting certain passages and ignoring others. He is emphasizing certain teachings of the New Testament and sort of relegating others to the background. And he is understanding his life, his career, his activities, his sinfulness, his lust, his, you know, behavior with his friends and his relationships with his friends in the context of not just the Bible, but the Stoic tradition, the Neoplatonic tradition, even to some degree the pagan tradition. All of these are coming together for him. And going forward into the medieval period, the medieval period will carry these as well. This is not pure Christianity. We're never going to see pure Christianity. Like, we can't even get at it here in the 21st century, like, too much has passed, too much has changed, too many things have been bound up with it. We cannot look at the New Testament teachings the way that the New Testament writers did. As much as we can read them with fresh eyes, without the burden of the tradition to some degree, we live in a world strongly influenced not just by Christianity, but by Augustine's version of Christianity. By a Christianity that has very much emphasized the celibacy, or the sort of denigration of passion and love in the, the erotic sense. Um, we, our Christianity, which has shaped the world, has shaped the world according to not the Christianity of Paul, Peter, and, God forbid, Jesus himself, but the Christianity handed from Paul and Peter to Augustine, to the ecumenical councils, to the papacy, which has then handed it down over and over again, generation to generation, until we see what we have today.
Christianity is not one voice. It never has been. As early as Paul bringing his epistles to a variety of different churches, founding churches all along Asia Minor, and informing the church in Rome, even then it was separated. It was disparate. It had a lot of different ideas, a lot of different priorities. And what is meant by a Christian could vary wildly across the Eastern Orthodox tradition and the Western Roman Empire and the Western Roman tradition. Uh, could vary wildly across Augustinian scholars and scholars who sort of reject or dislike Augustine. Could vary wildly between the Alexandrian school and the Tertullian school. Like, there's so many different ideas here. And I'm hoping that through this whole hour and a half long me rambling about history and the medieval period and politics and the Roman Empire and the fall of the Roman Empire and various philosophers and other important figures, I hope that if we got anything out of it, it's that this is a diverse, very fragmented religion, if we can even call it that, because at this point, it is so fragmented, so diverse, has had so many important schisms, that calling the people who practice Eastern Orthodoxy, the Coptic Church or the Syriac Church or the Russian Orthodox, as well as the Roman Catholics, as well as, you know, the early Patristic Fathers, as well as, never mind, Protestantism and Evangelicalism, which are phenomenons that are going to be much more recent. The fact that we somehow call all of these under one masthead, Christian, is kind of a big ask. There are so many differences that have come out in these 2,000 years, all of these little seeds that were planted in the first hundred years of Christianity being a thing have all blossomed in radically different ways. And on the one hand, they do all agree. Everyone who claims to be a Christian, with the possible exception of certain fringe heretical sects looking at you, the Mormons and or the Jehovah's Witnesses, agree to certain important tenets. Agree that the New Testament, as it has been canonized, as it appears in most Bibles, is authoritative for all Christians always. They all agree that the Nicene Creed, that original creed come up that they came up with at the first ecumenical council is binding, and that if you don't believe that, then you are not actually a Christian. But after that, not so much. The things that the Roman Catholic Church teaches about the authority of the Pope, or about like the celibacy of the priesthood, all of that is totally different from what the original Christians under Paul would have believed, or what the Eastern Orthodox Church believes, or what the, you know, Protestants believe in many cases. Um, there's a lot going on under the hood here. That's part of why I said when we started this class and we read the Old Testament, we read the New Testament, and I was like, okay, whenever you're researching Christianity, be careful, you are likely to get different voices. This is why. Because all of these voices are of various centuries old in some cases. Like the Ethiopian church is 2,000 years old. The Coptic church is, at the very latest estimation, like 1,500 years old. Like, each of these traditions, each of these churches has roots that lead back so many hundreds of years. And what's more, each of these churches claims that they're you know, authority goes all the way back to Paul, to Peter, to the New Testament. That they are the inheritors of the capital T truth. That while many have gotten it wrong in various ways, 
they have held on to their convictions for centuries. And the fact of the matter is, virtually all of them are wrong. We have every version of Christianity that exists today has been corrupted, either by its own insularity or by outside sources, the way that Augustine is listening to other people. It's just not the same as it was 2,000 years ago. And what's more, when I say corrupted, it has this negative connotation to it. It's changed. It's not necessarily banned. Christianity needed to adapt because the world around Christianity kept changing. Christianity was one thing when it was persecuted by the emperors, and it was a whole nother thing when all of a sudden Constantine gave them the green light to go ahead and do Christianity. It was one thing when it was, you know, hemmed in on all sides by, you know, the, the Visigoths and, or the Muslims or, you know, other sort of adversaries to the faith. And it was another thing when it was well embraced, like generally everybody around agreed that they were Christian. Um, it's changed because it's had to change. It's changed because of political and historical and economic and ideological forces that may or may not have been entirely 100% Christian motivated. And as much as some of the activities of Christianity has been sort of framed and understood as a return to form, like even that monastic reform that I was stressing in the 13th century, the basic structure of their argument was, we need to get back to basics. We need to correct the corruptions that the church has engaged in. We are imposing celibacy on the papacy, not because of the New Testament, but because without that guardrail, without the, the sort of command to be celibate, the papacy has become this nest of corruption and nepotism and like familial relationships. It's gotten gross. The fact of the matter is, every choice that has been made has changed Christianity in one way or another, has made it something different from the way that it initially started. And nobody in this process is 100% right or 100% wrong, at least not as far as our class is concerned. Whatever your pastor, whatever your priest, whatever your patriarch may teach, by all means, follow it. I am not saying that they are wrong or right for that matter. What I am saying is... They disagree with virtually everybody else out there. You put the famous quote that we had when I was in seminary was that if you asked three different Christians for their theology, you would get four different answers. It's always going to spread. It's always going to fragment. That's just the way it works. That's not necessarily a bad thing, though obviously it can contribute to a lot of problems. But be aware of this. As we talk about Christianity in the weeks and months to come, as you encounter it in your day-to-day -day activities, as you try and, you know, square our discussions in this philosophy class with Christianity, the thing that you observe in modern life, remember that it's not the same animal. It never was. Like, it will always be changing, metamorphosing, becoming something new. It will always be affected by the various factors around it. And be aware some of those factors may in fact bring it back to whatever its essence is supposed to be. Some of those may corrupt or distort it. You have to read Augustine and decide for yourself, is he a corruption or is he a purification? Is he orthodox or unorthodox? And keep in mind that whatever you're judging against, you should probably also be judging in the same way. There is no ideal form of Christianity. 
as much as we may say whatever said in the New Testament should be the version of Christianity that goes, I'm not sure that's true. And again, if we can't get back to it, if that's not something that is accessible to us, it's certainly not helpful. Instead, be aware. Listen. Look. Watch. See what these people are saying. See how they disagree with each other. See how Christianity itself is changing over these hundreds of years. Because it's going to be as important to our understanding of the, the sort of manifestation of love in this period of time as anything else. You cannot understand people's relationship to love in Western philosophy without understanding what Christianity is doing at any given moment. How it has changed to match. So as much as possible, I'm going to try and like keep up with that. It's just, you know, yet another com complexity in our whole discussion of history and civilization and how love is viewed in that lens. So I've already gone over time. I hope that this has been informative. If you do have questions, always feel free to like pose them my way. I know that there's a lot that we covered here, but there's also a lot that we didn't. And I am just glossing because we do not have the time to spend like as much time as is warranted talking about these transformations. Um, so if you have further questions about the development of Christianity, about the history of Christianity, about how that ties into our big thinkers like Augustine or Aquinas, um, if you are, have questions about how it ties into the way that love was viewed, email me, send me a message, ask. I'll be happy to answer. This stuff is fascinating, and I honestly want to, an excuse to learn more about it. Um, it's a shame that we don't have more time to discuss it. But for next week, we're switching gears. Um, we are going to be talking sort of within the context of Christianity to some degree, but we are very much going to be talking instead about the heretic, the influence of Islam on the courtly love tradition. And this is very much an aberration in the whole discussion of Christianity and love. This is very much coming from a very different quarter, and we're going to talk about how important it is, where it comes from, how this works, what it does, and it also will be a huge influence in the weeks to come as we are discussing how love changes and manifests throughout the rest of the medieval period and the modern period. So it should be a lot of fun. Looking forward, and I'll talk to you soon.